Prince Remembered from The Current. Hi, it's Andrea Swenson. While making Prince the story of 1999, I got a chance to speak to Dr. Fink, also known as Matt Fink, one of Prince's first keyboard players and a member of the revolution. This is our full conversation. Hi, everybody. This is Matt Fink, a.k.a. Dr. Fink from Prince and the Revolution. One of the things that we're going to be talking about at the very beginning of this podcast before we get to 1999 is this pivotal moment in all of your lives when you open for the Rolling Stones. What comes to mind as you think back on those two performances? It was at the Los Angeles Coliseum, October 81. Well, just having the opportunity to open for the Stones being youngsters from the Midwest who looked up to all those guys, you know, was really a dream come true. A fantasy fulfilled, as you might think. Unfortunately, it was a bit disappointing because of the reception that we received by quite a few of the audience members. I I know there were people out there that were more polite and probably gave us the benefit of the doubt, but then you had these uh, people out there that didn't seem to appreciate what we were about. And so we took the stage, we started to play, and then, you know, people were flipping us the bird, and they were booing, and they were throwing food and bottles and cans and crumpled up paper cups. And, you know, we, we were all nearly pelted with stuff. I know I got pelted, actually, in my head with one of those crumpled up paper cups. It did sting. But what was interesting is I thought that the Rolling Stones had more of a 60s counterculture kind of audience that would be more peaceful than this. So I was a bit surprised by that. So it kind of took on that Hell's Angels edge since they allowed the Hell's Angels to still be their security force, even at that time. So you had this faction of unruly types that didn't really quite get what Prince was doing. So you had a mixed race group of people up there, mixed gender. Prince was dressed in his trench coat and his thigh-high stockings and high-heeled boots and just looking radical compared to what they're used to. Although Mick Jagger used to come out in kind of sexy clothing at times. But he was white. But he was white, yeah. So you had the the three black front guys and the... Anyway, you you get it. So, yeah, yeah, it was disappointing. So we we got out of there uh, without being skinned alive too badly, but uh, it was interesting. Mick Jagger, of course, appreciated Prince. He personally asked us to come and do that show. You know, and he begged Prince to come back and do the second show in spite of you know, the first one being as disappointing as it was. Uh, unfortunately, the second show went about the same. But I will tell you that even the Stones fans threw shoes at Mick up onto the stage. So I just want to let you know they were they just were, in general, not the nicest people. Right. And I'll never forget what <laughs> what Mick said during the show once there was just a stage full of, of people's shoes up there. He said, I ain't a frickin' doormat. What are you doing? Yeah, like, what do you think people do? You know, so he was complaining, too, at, okay. at the violence and the just the um, rudeness of these Crazy. people. So, yeah, it was so really surprising. We have a little bit of audio from this show. Oh, great. And I want to see what it brings to mind just to hear. Okay. And I believe this is when it kind of turned. This is from the second show, I believe, uh-huh. and it's a performance of Jack You Off. I think you're home free. Really? Really? One more time. 
And this is from the crowd, obviously, recording. <laughs> Yeah, there was definitely some booing there at the end, wasn't there? You know, the, the issue is they weren't ready for that kind of overt slang sexuality. I think that's what took them by surprise. They and don't want a guy telling you, I'll jack you off. jack you off, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they appreciate I got to tell you, when Prince presented that song to the band back in the day, and, and we, we, we all played on that song, by the way, in the studio, and... Um, I was concerned, actually, as much as I thought, okay, this is, he's going to shock, is the shocker, is for shock value in, in a lot of ways, and that's what he was about. I, I did say to him, I said, are you worried that this could have an adverse reaction? And he shrugged his shoulders and went, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> Well, so, there you go. Yeah, so I went, okay, you know. <laughs> I was totally into what he did, though. I mean, I I very rarely said to him, oh, I think this is bad or wrong, mm. you shouldn't do it, you know. Right. So uh, I like that, too. You know, and I mean, I think I had an influence in, with him about people like Frank Zappa and people like that who were also doing risque kind of stuff. Right. So I think he took a cue from that as well. Cause, yeah. Because, you know, I said, you got to listen to Frank. You know, if you're, if you're doing this, you got to listen to Frank. <laughs> <laughs> So jumping off that moment mm -hmm. and then thinking about that winter, you guys went on the controversy tour, but Prince is also starting to work in the studio on what would become 1999. Mm -hmm. Were you involved in the home studio at Lake Riley? I would go there from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. It was intimate, of course, because it was in the basement of a house and... It wasn't really a traditional studio where it's built in properly. It was somewhat semi-built in, you know, and they had, you had a big mixing console in there and you know, the usual accoutrement for a studio. But um, it, it was cool for a home studio. This is rare. I mean, there weren't a lot of those things around at that time. Not too many artists did that right. with their homes. I get the impression he would just kind of call people over to come hang out and see yep. what he was working on. That's and... right. Yep. So definitely there from time to time. Not the whole time, of course, but, you know, come on over and listen to this, you know, and here's the tape. Go learn this, you know, <laughs> things like that. Or here, uh, hold this note down for me while I do that, you know. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, so I am very curious to hear what you would say about how would you describe the 1999 tour, also known as the Triple Threat Tour? Oh, boy, that was an exciting time. Because we, at, at that point, I'd been in the group since the late 78, and here we are, it's uh, 82. So four years of just really balls to the walls, hard work, rehearsing and touring and doing all that stuff, and it was all beginning to pay off. 
which was great because that's that was our goal to make ourselves as popular as possible and please and entertain people so yeah exciting you know when you're in the bubble as they say they call it the bubble in fact our manager used to say okay you're going to be in the bubble now <laughs> we're we're doing everything you're just going to get on the bus and play and that's it and, and you're going to be isolated in a sense and you're just going to travel and, and you're just going it's it's a whirlwind uh, but I just know that uh, he had really come into his own as an entertainer and really learned the ropes by then, and the confidence was there, and his show prowess was amazing. You know, he, he could just control the audience so well and give them what they wanted. And, of course, uh, I just remember that the women in the audience went crazy for him. Lots of screaming. Oh. It was like the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Although early on, I got to tell you, there was, when we did one of the earliest tours, we played a theater in San Francisco, and I, this was just for the second album. We had no security at that time. So we are just leaving the show, and we went out the backstage door, and there was a throng of females laying and waiting for him. And I'm not kidding, when you went through this gauntlet of women, and they literally shredded his shirt off of his back, tore it, oh tearing God. like piranha. Jesus. Yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> I'll never forget that. So then he had to have bodyguards after that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> shredded. <laughs> yeah. It so, was shredded. They each got a piece, you know. <laughs> it's interesting to think about the tour was almost halfway over by the time Little Red Corvette became a top 10 hit. Yeah. Do you remember kind of the vibe of being on tour changing, the audience changing? Was that noticeable? Well, it's been so long <laughs> that I'm not sure if I can remember that change so well. But I just know that by that time, in spite of that single becoming so big and MTV, of course, making it as big as it was, and 1999, the song itself, that, yeah, the energy level kept getting bigger and bigger from the audience as it went on. No question. So, yeah, was there more pressure on the band? Not really. Okay. No, he, he never had a lot of pressure. The one thing that, that I can say is that when he would be on tour, and on any given tour, he really liked to modify the show as we went along. So like we'd do three, four shows the same way, and then we'd be at soundcheck, and he would say, okay, we're going to add this song. Oh, and, and we're doing this different transition into that song, and then we're going to add this, you know, whatever. And so we literally were changing arrangements on the fly and playing them that same evening. Wow. Yeah. Were you part of the whole review of the videotapes each night and that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The tour bus, uh, right after the show, we watched the show with him for either critiquing or praise. <laughs> yeah. So if you screwed up, you know you'd have to watch it later. Oh, Yeah. Yep. So, so if, if, if there was a mistake that was definitely noticeable, and he he turned to look at you, I just kind of turned my head and go, "Huh? Wh wh who is that? I don't know. That wasn't me." You know, I joke with him. I mess with him. <laughs> yeah. It's wow. Funny. No pressure. But then if he if he did a clinker, I'd say, huh, "I just heard you do something too." So Prince made mistakes. Oh, sure, once in a while, but very rarely. Okay. Very rarely. And he was one of those artists that, you know, when he sang live, he was just impeccable. So you didn't hear flat or sharp notes and missed lyrics or anything like that. Pretty rare. Wow. But there was an occasional flub, sure, just like he's human. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Since we're looking back through time, I'm wondering, you know, thinking of all the vault tracks that people are going to get to hear, this era of, you know, late 81 to early 83, this pivotal moment in in Prince's life and career, what do you think this box set's going to be able to tell us about where Prince was in this time? You're going to hear stylistically, there's a definite vibe. You know, it's pre-Purple Rain, post-controversy. There's still some of that holdover of what he was doing from controversy era, but then again, he was still progressing into new territory. And even I personally haven't heard some of those extra unreleased pieces, but I do remember a lot of them, some of which I played on. But if, if you just follow it from the beginning of the career all the way to the later part, you hear that progression of experimentation taking place and how he was always transforming himself into something different. With every record. Yeah. Really. There was always something new and original and exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. So you can really hear that as well on 1999. And what's interesting is even in the unreleased material, there's some real gems in there that definitely could have made the album. Right. Or even been hits. Right. During that era. And it's so cool that they're pretty much fully produced. Yeah. He didn't really demo stuff. He made full songs. Yeah, I usually did. Although, you know, when you listen to some of the stuff, I don't know if they remixed them or not. I have to listen to it again, but I've heard them release certain things that still sound a little rough around the edges. Hopefully they took the liberty to remix some of that stuff. Mm, yeah. I have the track listing, and you mentioned just now that you may have played on a couple of these. I just wonder if there's any that come to mind that you might have a story about that you'd like to share. There's a lot. <laughs> it's like 24 tracks. <laughs> the band worked on Possessed as a group with him. And we thought about bringing that one back out again to play on tour, so mm. probably next year. Let's see, what else? Can't Stop This Feeling I Got, that one for sure we worked on. And that one never saw the light of day, won't see it till now. We worked on that one. Now, Do Yourself a Favor goes way back. That's even pre-signing period. Right, Pepe Willie, right? Yeah, Pepe Willie, yep. What can you tell us about that song? Not a lot. Just that it was done early on, mm -hmm. before he had his record deal with Warners. Well, those two come to mind okay. at the moment, for sure. I would love to hear more about Possessed. What do you remember about that? I wasn't sure I liked it at first. You know, I, I, and then the word Possessed kind of bugged me a little bit, you know, because the, the implication is kind of dark, you know. But he made it and wrote it in such a way that it was happy and joyful and a lot of energy, and basically singing about how he's possessed in his music, basically is what the message is. So it's okay, I guess. He's not acting like he's possessed by uh, an evil entity or anything like that. <laughs> Similar uh, to Purple Music, he's talking about drugs in that song, but he's talking about music as his, his drug. addiction. Yeah, yeah, his you know, drug. yeah, and in those days, really, he was so anti-drug all the time. And he, he didn't even like it if he saw me with a drink. Mm. He would actually sometimes say, what are you doing? Why are you drinking? You don't need to drink. You know, I go, <laughs> well, I, I'd say, Prince, I'm not a big drinker. It's just one, maybe two. <laughs> I'm not going to be driving. Right. And even if I was, I wouldn't be drunk enough. You know, and I'd reassure him that I'm not, don't worry, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. I love How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. I love that. And he used to do such a great live version of that on the tour. I think that's on the live record that is in this package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The li now there's a video, a DVD in the deluxe of the show, which right. I've seen some of that already. And it's just amazing to me. You know, it, it, it all comes flooding back, the memories from watching that. Yeah. 
Wow. I forgot how badass we were. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, great. We should probably wrap up. Thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. You can find the complete four-part series, Prince, the story of 1999, wherever you get your podcasts.